your children. Everyone, Lord, love you for Jesus' sake. Do all things for the kingdom of heaven's sake. Decision by decision, choice by choice, may we be intentional in our godliness and not just float along with the tide always because this is the nature of floaters, the the tide of humanity. Lord, we pray to be swimming upstream, that is, going counter-cultural as we seek to be the culture of the body of Christ, the church, the apple of your eye, that people that's formed for your praise lives by the word of God and which seeks the glory of the living God, Jehovah, Jesus, the great God, the I am that I am, the infinite and eternal God that you are. Lord, we thank you that you bless us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ so that things that are given from heaven we can see our servants of the great blessedness of the cross, the freely given to us all things for the sake of your Son. And that would be the good things and the bad things and everything ordinary. You give all these things because you love us and you want us to be in this world to sustain us, but sometimes, even often, to add to us to increase our faith by subtraction of things, taking away what was too precious to us. We made it an idol. We made it more of a delight than the things of of salvation. And we confided in these things and we thought to have fun instead of to be godly. Lord, we pray that you would give us repentance and give us faith and courage to be more and more like your son, sons by grace and adoption. Give the spirit and the word to rule over us in our worship and in all this wonderful Sabbath day. We say as often as we can, we're glad to come into the house of God glad on Sunday, and we're glad we can come on different days also, lead the way in this culture with Thanksgiving services. The first thing we do, having been given so much in Christ, is give thanks to God, and what better place than in the house of God. We pray, Father, to be that thankful people, not morose and sullen, and something that passes for a a form of godliness, but denies the power thereof. Not as those whose hope means everything is deferred, even joy, and even a a lightness in our step because of all the sin of this present age. Lord, let us not be like that. Let us believe that you have saved us and you have taken us to heaven, as you say in your word. We're risen with Christ and the power of his cross and resurrection have taken us there. We're transported by truth and by your spirit to heavenly things, to have a perspective of God himself, a worldview, looks down on the world in the light of the word of God and knows 
your wisdom in all things. And that this story that's unfolding is your story. It's church history, gathering, defending, and the preserving of the church of Christ. We pray, Father, that you would bless us then, and so that as we face different trials, we are thankful as you lead us through them and out of them. We thank you for surgeries for eyes, and we thank you, Lord, that you've restored the sister to good eyesight, even better than before. We pray that your blessing upon her. We pray for your blessing upon Mr. Walborn, Annette's father, and the father-in-law of Henry, and the grandfather of Jonathan, and of others. And we pray that you would bless him as he submits to heart surgery tomorrow. Have mercy, Lord, that his heart might be right with you, and that he may commit even the procedures of men to the great physician of body and soul. May he and his wife and the whole family cast their burden upon the Lord and know that you sustain the righteous. We pray, Father, for family and friends near and far, some of us traveling this week as we celebrate Thanksgiving and your goodness to us. We pray that you would give safety and you would give, Father, a good return. Lord, we remember those whom we don't see so often. We pray that you would be near to them. And may our nearness be such that we meet at the cross every day. We are exhilarated about the same things, even the things of heaven and eternity. And we are those who hate the same things, the things that God hates, and love the things that you love. Lord, in this communion, there is no miles, there are no miles that can separate your saints, your sons, your daughters. We thank you, Lord, for so many things, and we pray that you would bless us now as we hear the preaching of the gospel, and as we would uh, also celebrate the sacrament together. We thank you for communion, communion, for unity in this body. We thank you for godly elders and pastor and deacons, we thank you, Lord, that we can consider presently the, the next chapter in this church with regard to office bearers and a budget and all these things. Lord, help us to see how you lead us so wisely, righteously, and lovingly, and that you bless us. We are yours, Father. Here we are. Speak, your servants would hear. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's sing number 213. 213, rise and sing, Rebels Who Had Dared to Show, three stanzas.
be seated and receive the collection. Let's take our Bibles at this time and turn to Hebrews chapter 2. And we have been considering in our supper sermons a series on the book of Hebrews. And we're about uh, chapter 2 and verse 9. But we'll start at chapter 2, verse 8, B. There's no B there, but we'll start with but now. And then we'll go to the end of the chapter. Hear the word of God. But now we do not yet see all things put under him. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, and crowned with glory and honor, that he by the grace of God might taste death for everyone. It was fitting for him, for whom are all things and by whom are all things, and bringing many sons to glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will sing praise to you. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, here am I in the children whom God has given me, Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For indeed, he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. Therefore, in all things he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. Thus far we read the word of God. This passage we read will be our text for this this, uh, morning's service. It's a daunting task to approach this text, which speaks of the greatness of Jesus in a thousand different ways. And uh, it's almost as if words cannot express what is expressed by this word. We can know it, but these things are unspeakable of the greatness of the Savior. And that's been the theme of Hebrews, as we've seen, chapter 1 and chapter 2. It's all about the greatness of 
the superiority of the Savior to any other one who would be a pretend Savior in whom people would boast. So the writer to the Hebrews has been very careful in detailing the greatness of Jesus with regard to all creatures and claiming that he's God. Indeed, that's what he sets forth here. He is the Son of God. And also by saying that he is the Messiah. That's how he's introduced this whole book of Hebrews. And he will speak to Hebrew Christians, not only, but to Gentile Christians about things they need to know about this Savior. And the first thing is that they don't forget what they know about this Savior. They are to take heed, are the Hebrew Christians and the Gentile Christians, earnest heed to the things that they've heard of Jesus, lest they drift away, Hebrews 2, verse 1. It is, in fact, a terrible sin when people who call themselves Christians, Hebrew or Gentile, uh, forget Christ, the Christ of their Christianity. And there are so many temptations to this that the entire book of Hebrews has indeed been called a grand exhortation to take heed to the things of Christ, not to neglect them, not to forget them, to draw near to God and remember him and live according to faith as even the heroes of faith are set forth in Hebrews 11. That's a pattern for our living. We want to consider under in this great passage here, therefore, the greatness of the Savior. It's not a new subject, but this will be the subject that we deal with a little bit here. And I want us to remember certain things about this. I cannot uh, possibly explain all of the verses here and their connections, but I do want to say some basic things about what's set forward here and Jesus' superiority to angels and to any other would-be savior in the world. And so I want to consider what I'm following here in a certain commentator, certain S words, and I'm adding some in, that help us to remember the greatness and superiority of Jesus but I want especially us to remember the connection that this great Savior is with us. He's made a connection, and uh, I'll explain that. It has to do with, you can stop your ears, you, grammar, you haters of grammar, but I wouldn't do it. It has to do with what's called prepositions, connecting words. And, uh, and we're going to go from there and apply these things, and also as we anticipate partaking of the supper of the Lord. The first thing we need to remember about Jesus is not in the text. <laughs> it's prior to it, though, and it's assumed by the text, which speaks of Jesus, whom we see, verse 9, is made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, and so on. Before that, however, there was a selection, and that's my first S. An election, we would call it, but in order to have an essay, I say selection. A selection. A selection in Christ of certain ones for whom this is written. And there's the connection. There's a choosing by God of some in Christ. There's the preposition, in. There's a location that's given to God's people for whom Jesus would come and the location has to, be, has to do with being in a certain place. 
in this connection with Jesus. Now, we know from the Bible that this has to do with God's eternal decree. Selection, election, whatever you want to call it, is God's decree. So before we were made, we were thought of in the eternal mind of God. That's election, selection. And we were thought of, you and I, who are in Christ now, we were thought of as God was thinking of His Son, who would become the Christ. We were in Christ, and God was choosing us in Him before the foundation of the world. This was eternal thought and mind and desire that we would be in Christ. Now, remember that. That is part of the greatness of Jesus compared to angels. That's what the writer is doing here. Right away, he's speaking to Hebrews about some beings that they thought were great. And I'm thinking of the angels whom the Hebrews thought, and they were right, mediated the old covenant. Look at Hebrews 2.2. For if the words spoken through angels proved steadfast and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation which at the first began to be spoken of by the Lord but, and was confirmed to those, uh, uh, by those who heard him? Angels were great, according to the Hebrew mind, because they mediated the old covenant, the law. That's what's being spoken of here. The law by which is the knowledge of sin. The law which revealed God. The law which was God covenanting with the people. Now, bear with me. In distinction from angels, Christ was before them. He's not a creature. The apostle here is attempting to show how great Jesus is before those mediators. He's the mediator, not of an old covenant, but of a new covenant. There's something new with Jesus. That's why he's far superior than the angels. And even before the angels were created, Christ, the uncreated son, was being thought of by God to be made a little lower than the angels. This is the context, and this is the doctrine in which we see the things that happen in time, God's plan. So in the selection of Christ to be the mediator of a new covenant, a salvation full and free and gracious and spiritual and life-giving, Jesus is proven to be superior to the angels were just created mediators of an old covenant, and they're nothing like Jesus, who is God anyway. But now even when God is contemplating that Jesus would be a man, he's proven to be superior to those angels, those mediators of an old thing. So Jesus. Secondly, and this is really the rest of this passage here, Jesus is greater than the angels and everything in the world, when he comes as a man. He's made a little lower than the angels, the text says, and actually prior to it says, the Son of Man is Jesus there in Psalm 8, made a little lower than the angels, 
And though we don't see right now that all things are put under his feet, that's verse 8, now we do not yet see all things put under him, yet Jesus, this great Son in whom we are selected, chosen, comes to humanity to be a human, and here's the S, substitute for humans. He's selected, we're selected in him. He's selected, and he agrees with the selection of the Father, does the Son. They commune with his counsel of peace, this pactum salutis, this eternal plan. And then he comes as the great mediator of humans. Has to come. Angels can't. Jesus can and does. What he's doing here, he's taking out all the props of these angels or that the Jews might have been attached to more than Jesus Christ who, who came into flesh. Angels, they're not so inglorious as that. They don't have human flesh. They don't come down, they're exalted. And they don't die. But Jesus dies. So this is what is being brought out here. Jesus, not only in the eternal decree, but in his humanity, stepping down, taking on the form of a servant, becoming the servant of servants, human in every sense of the word except for sin, is in this proven to be greater than the angels. Because angels, though they mediate or go-betweens between God and the, and the people of the law, they can't save. But this one does. So you have here the doctrine with a preposition of substitution. The selection of the Son leads to his coming down to be a substitute for us, and that's the second preposition. By the way, I'm not the only theologian who's a grammarian. In fact, you need theologians and preachers who are grammarians who take heed to prepositions and doctrines, of course, because God has spoken into us in human language. And one I even heard this past week, a colleague of mine was saying that the whole System of theology is connected together with prepositions, ins and fours and little words that can make all the difference. And preachers need to bring them out. So I am. For us, he comes. For us. In our place, the doctrine of substitution. And in our place to die. We see him who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, for the suffering of death, and we see him crowned with glory and honor. He was risen, that he by the grace of God might taste death for everyone, everyone for whom he died, who will go to glory, who was chosen for this, and who needed this Atonement. So Jesus comes and he's the substitute. 
and it's in the way of suffering. This is brought out again and again in this text here, and this is the next, the next um, S word. He was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death and crowned with glory and honor, but the suffering is mentioned again. He is the one who brings many sons to glory, and in doing that, their captain of salvation needs to be made perfect through sufferings. Jesus has to suffer. It says here, we might say oddly, that he might be made perfect. doesn't mean that there was any immorality of Jesus, any tendency to disobedience, but we read in Hebrews 5 that through the things he suffered, he learned obedience, and the idea seems to be, though it's a hard concept, that Jesus, he learned the proof of the need of sufferings, even he learned in his humanity, and, and we learned of him the proof of the need of his sufferings in his sufferings, in his obeying in the sufferings. He became a servant of Jehovah God, obeying, my will is to do the will of him who sent me. Yes, here I am, servant. And the proof of his steadfastness and of his particular perfection was given as he himself was proven to be Messiah in this obedience, this unearthly obedience in the worst of sufferings. So Jesus, he's the one who selected and he's the one who is a substitute for us, and he suffers for our sins in our place. And then this says, he's made the salvation captain, as some has described this, to try to get the S in here. He is the one in bringing many sons to glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. He's a salvation captain. Now that word for captain in verse um, 10 is a word that means a pioneer. Not just one who gives orders, but one who, like a pioneer, goes over the Cumberland Gap in Kentucky, like Daniel Boone, and establishes Fort Boone. Well, here we have the kingdom of heaven established by a pioneer, a leader, one who goes before. And the idea of the use of this verb in the Greek is that he is the pioneer so that others follow him. And here then, you get a different idea of Jesus being substitute. Now we're made participants. We follow him in his obedience. He's, we follow his example and, and we follow his, uh, his perfection, his, his love, his wisdom. We're made to be followers to this place that Nobody wants to go because there's wild this and that and we're leaving all the comforts of home and we're leaving father and mother and everything and everyone to follow this pioneer, this leader of this established thing that's never been had and never heard of before, the kingdom of God and of glory here below. And we're made through this salvation captain, to follow him. For as he says, both uh, he, he is the one who 
makes us to be followers in sanctifying us. There's another way that he's a perfect and great Savior. So he does everything for us. He substitutes for us. He suffers for us. And now as the captain of salvation, he, the salvation captain, he, he's the one who, who uh, sanctifies us so that we are given the Holy Spirit to follow him. We are born again. Life is now a journey of those alive to give the glory to God. He makes us holy. Beautiful. This one, in fact, in the sanctifying of us, sends his spirit from heaven. It's called the spirit of adoption. It makes us sons and makes himself, therefore, a brother. This is a beauty of this text that could be elaborated on for about 10,000 years. He's not ashamed to call them brethren. That's a reference to the quote that will be made in Psalm 22 after the dereliction of Jesus, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? After this, and the release from death, the psalmist says, and Jesus in him, I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly will I sing praise to you. This is the other side of, the, of death, statement of exhilaration and a victory of the Savior. We're made sons and therefore taken into the family of God. And then, two other things. He's the Satan destroyer. Again, a sermon for another thousand years. And as much then, verse 14, as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Jesus, you know, destroyed the devil. That's what the text says. Destroyed him who had been given for a time the power of death. Amazing. God would give the devil that power, but it's to execute God's judgments, to be sure. So the devil is an unwitting servant of the glory of God. But Jesus conquers the devil. Not that the devil's dead. But the power is taken out of him, that is, for God's people. And we are released from a terrible grip called the fear of death. You realize that? And to apply this a little bit here, this is what is gripping this world, this fear of death. And it shows itself in that people in many ways, but one is that most people don't even want to deal with death. Most unbelievers, I don't want to deal with it. It's not better to go to the house of mourning. I'll avoid it. Don't want to do anything but play and play and play and live for this life and do good and so on and, and have a little bit of religion maybe and this guy upstairs, maybe he'll reward me. This is how they speak. It's blasphemous. But their life reveals slavery. They think they're free by denying death and they're actually in bondage to the very reaction of this denial. It's a life that's a lie. 
It's a life that's a lie with regard to God, who has said the wages of sin is death. It's a life with regard to man. It's a denial of sin and what he deserves, this man who's a sinner. Well, Jesus destroyed that and has released us from that grip. It's amazing. And then this finally, he now sympathizes with us. Of this we'll speak more in Hebrews 4, but think of that. The one who's not ashamed to call his brethren, he has himself suffered being tempted, verse 18, and he's able to aid those who are tempted. This is sympathy. He knows your pain. Well, he does. And you know, he knows it better than we do, and he knows it exactly like it needs to be known. Because when he was tempted, not like us, but when he was, he always resisted it. He never gave in. And he suffered in his temptation, the full temptation. We ourselves, we're, we're tempted and we so miserably yield so often to the temptation. Never Jesus, never. He suffered and was tempted, but he never sinned. And in this, you see, he really understood the nature and the, the evil of temptation and of the devil. So he gets it. When we have cancer, when we're going into surgery, when we have, uh, when we have temptations of old age, even though he's died in the midst of his youth, he gets it, though he was never married. What are the temptations of those who are in married, uh, who are married, uh, who are married? And so... He knows. Is the human perfect among all humans and our brother? Now, beloved, what do we make of this? This is uh, what I want us to make of it, what the Bible wants us to make of it. Paul's writing here, or whoever wrote this, God used the writer here, to address Jewish Christians. That's why it's called the letter to the Hebrews. Apparently their, their problem was they wanted to go back to the old covenant, maybe to angels who were glorious and who mediated the old covenant, maybe to those better things in better days when there was a kingdom that was visible and you could see it and there was exaltation we could measure because David or Solomon were given tribute of the nations and we looked better than anybody else. They wanted to go back. Us Gentiles, who never had a back, we never had an old covenant, we probably have a more serious problem. We want to go not to the old, but to the new. What's the new? Anything. Anything but Jesus. That's our problem. That's the devil's temptation. We are prone to neglect the great salvation. We are prone not to give earnest heed to the things we've heard. So that here the minister, he stomps and he snorts and he's this and he's that and he tries to make us here, but we don't get it. At least it doesn't stick. 
and especially when it comes to walking what we're talking about and walking all the way up to the cross and in its shadow and casting our burdens upon the Lord. Our anxieties reveal that we want something new and someone new and greater technology and greater medicine to fix us and to to ease us of our anxieties and of our concerns. And we trust in them. Instead of using them, we end up trusting them. And you know what that means. The things we trust end up using us. We're manipulated. The devil works that way. So we want something new. Like the Athenians, we want to discuss something new. Some new approach. We want a new seminarian, right? Fresh out of seminary, and he's got all the strategies. If we just do this or do that, have a better campaign, canvas the neighborhood better than that, and have a program for this and that and the other thing, then we'll be successful. But then we will have missed the word of God. whose success is measured in a cross and a resurrection, the Son of God having come down to be a man lowly, a sinful uh, a substitute for sinners, and not ashamed to call sinners his brethren. Amazing. Well, beloved, the simple call is believe. Over and over again, Hebrews is this book, hold fast, believe, don't neglect the great salvation, don't neglect the Savior, don't do that. Draw near to God, run the race, consider him the author and finisher of our faith. I'm quoting different places in Hebrews. But the whole book setting forth in the future, not only the greatness of Jesus compared to angels, but to Moses and to Aaron, is about teaching us what to value in life. We value this, we value health, we value long life, we value family, we value this and money and and whatever. And God says... Be a psalmist, won't you? Say, whom have I in heaven besides you? And there's none on earth that I desire besides you. That's faith. First song in the night. The song of joy in the midst of a despairing world. And that's our witness, people of God. That's our witness. We come away from the word of God as words of God, written not with flesh and ink, but with the Spirit of Christ. You see, we are all of one. That's what he says. Of one, we are of one flesh, and we are of one God, the Bible says. We and Jesus He's not ashamed to call us brethren. 
He sees our faults. He knows our frame. But he knows we're in him and he's in us. And we're loved with an everlasting love and everyday love. And for every situation, we're loved of God. He's not ashamed to call us brethren. And Hebrews eleven sixteen says, God's not ashamed to call us brethren. He's not ashamed of us. Let us not, therefore, be ashamed of him. Amen.